0: Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiative's podcast. My name is Oliver Hartwig and today we're joined by three of our economics colleagues here at the Initiative. We are joined by Dr. Eric Krampton, our Chief Economist, and by our fellows Dr. Tony Burton and Dr. Bryce Wilkinson. Welcome to you all. Thank you. Good morning. Yeah, thank you. We weren't quite sure where to start, so we probably start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. We want to have a roundtable discussion on the state of the New Zealand economy, because there are many people now considering whether Australia might be a better proposition, especially now that the Australians have made it easier for us to settle there. So let's just see whether we can discuss where New Zealand stands in all of this, where we can do better to just accept the competitive challenge from Australia, or whether the last person will just simply switch off the light. And to start with that, I'm actually looking at you, Eric, because it's the first time I actually see you physically in the podcast studio since you had an accident, and I think you need to talk about that and what it tells us about the state of our competitiveness, because you experienced the healthcare system.
1: Oh, yeah, so I haven't really talked about it much, or at least I've not written on it, but uh, I've spent the last couple of months recovering from a minor scooter accident that resulted Minor? Well, <laughs> could have been a lot worse. It was minor in the grand scheme of things. It was just a broken arm and a broken hip. Well... It was the femur rather than the hip. And it was just a crack in the elbow that meant I couldn't take any, any weight on the arm. Yeah. But It looked terrible enough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's con- all good.
2: The context of this is Eric has been on crutches for the last two months. So this is what a minor injury is.
0: But anyway, what I really wanted to talk about was actually the state of our healthcare system because it's one thing to write about it and write about the nurses we're losing to Australia. It's another thing to actually see it in
1: practice. Can you explain how that was for you? Oh, sure. So had the accident going home from work event on would have been the night about 1st of March. Something like that. So yes. I was driving home on my e-scooter on the Hutt cycle trail and avoiding being hit by a car that is trying to turn into the Waitomo right across the bike lane. I ditched from the scooter and ended up with the bust leg. I couldn't put any weight on the leg and first I called wife to come picked me up. I thought I might be able to get into the car to go over to the hospital that way, but I, I couldn't even get in the car, so we called over for an ambulance. That took about an hour and a half. An hour and a half. So, yeah. It and was, we
0: were talking about a weeknight, a Wednesday. Yes, it was a Wednesday about night. 7 o'clock or something yeah. like that. Yeah,
1: but I was fairly low priority because it wasn't anything life-threatening. I was standing there with on one leg and kind of leaning on the car. So it was uh, safe to keep you lying there. I wasn't lying. I was standing. Standing. Uh, yeah. Lying down would have been harder. Oh, it's true. Uh, Any shift in position was very bad. Uh, At least it wasn't raining. uh, The weather was nice. It could have been a lot worse. (laughs) And one of the things that you get when you've got massive shortages in healthcare is radical triaging in the ambulance service because they don't have enough staff. So... Anything that is lower priority, like me, and I was right to have me lower priority, there are more pressing things, but it'd be great to have more capacity overall to be able to have more ambulances able to deliver better pickup times. But it's not just the number of ambulances, right? The ambulances get held up once they get to ED because there's not enough capacity in ED, so that slows everything down when the ambulances get there. So, Unless you don't have to wait in reception. For seven or eight hours, as most
0: people do these days.
1: Got to bypass that, which was helpful. And the staff were awesome all the way through. The ambulance technicians who came through to help were great. They gave me the good drugs. Things hurt a little bit less once that happened. Lucky you. I I really don't get the recreational use of any of this because it didn't do a damn thing for me in that kind of sense. (laughs) No, but But, I was kidding. I mean, you you, you think
0: you have an accident. You want to be seen straight away, right?
1: (laughs) So get through to ED, and it was... Excellent also that the ambulance staff did the advocating on my behalf to try and get seen by a doctor perhaps a little bit quicker, but did manage to sit to lie in the hallway for several hours in the ED, along with lots of other people waiting for somebody to be free to make an assessment. Yeah,
0: I actually had the pleasure myself recently, two trips to A&E, and I was lucky to get through to a treatment room where I could get into an ECG, but I saw so many beds in the hallway. It was frightening.
1: Yeah. So I was chatting with the woman uh, in the bed across the aisle, uh, older, but I wouldn't say elderly yet, but she was worried that she may have had a stroke and she really wanted to get seen about it and she was Mm -hmm. nervous about it. Mm -hmm. And it didn't seem to be that big of a priority. I eventually got into a separate room where I was going to wind up with an assessment found out afterwards there's some guy that had been running around with a knife in ED. I missed that. So they continue to have security issues in there where the health facilities wind up being kind of mental health facilities as well and that's not ideal for anybody. So with that description
0: you have really nicely introduced us to the topic because in a way what you experienced is probably the result of Australia's lure because they have taken a lot of our healthcare workers but also one of the things that is driving people away. I mean, the state of a healthcare system, the state of education, the state of infrastructure, there are so many areas that are not particularly performing
1: well at the moment. Oh, yeah, it's a big mess. So (laughs) you could go back several years. Labor decided that they didn't like Filipino nurses coming in to work in aged care, whether it was based on a view that pay in the sector should go up to attract more Kiwi applicants or outright racism, where they figured that Kiwis didn't want to be treated by some dirty, dirty foreigner. I'm saying that ironically, that's their view, not mine, but they shut that down. So then, Hospitals aren't able to discharge elderly people to aged care facilities because they're losing beds because they can't staff them. When hospitals can't discharge elderly patients from wards into aged care facilities, then emergency departments can't discharge patients from ED into the ward where they'd be once, once that part's over. So the EDs get all plugged up. It's a big mess.
0: So as we're abstracting now from Eric's individual case and from even the healthcare system, I'm looking at you, Bryce. It is a long-standing feature of New Zealand policy debates to compare ourselves with Australia. And I believe you were even involved in the 2025 task force for a while, while, yes, it, it, right. while it existed for its brief time. Tell us about that, actually. How has this relationship shifted in the competitive pressures from Australia to New Zealand?
3: Well, both countries struggled and did major reforms. Australia before New Zealand in the early 1980s, and Hawke and Keating, and New Zealanders watched that and we're going through our own problems with draconian wage and price and interest rates and rent freezes and exchange rate freezes and things and big public deficits and mounting public debt, a lot of which was owned in overseas currencies, so couldn't be inflated away. And the, I think Lindsay Perrigo summed up the New Zealand reforms quite well. He said they were done by a bunch of people at the top, but it didn't change attitudes and things with the population at large. Ruth Richardson kept it going, but Jim Bolger as prime minister pulled the rug out, out from under her after three years. don't think it was really her problem, and his government reneged on a promise about a surtax on superannuation, and I don't know whether that was her call or not, but I doubt that it was. And then yeah, the, the New Zealand public, the voting public, got annoyed by the changes in public policy and their top down nature and voted for MMP. and there was a, a sequence of accidents by Longy and, and Bolger as prime ministers and their statements about about that, which led to the current situation where You know, cohesive government is much harder because of the fragmented nature of government responsibilities. We're now in an exceptional state where we've had three years of a government with a majority in its own right. But the
0: fact is actually that we've had this differential between New Zealand and Australia for a very long time. It was one of the things that John Key campaigned on in 2008. I believe he had pictures taken at the then Westpac Stadium arguing this is our net loss per year and we have to turn this around. And that was the background to that 2025 task force, which was predicated on the idea that we could somehow close the gap. And for a while, it looked actually quite promising that we were able to do some of that at least, but in the last few years, this has widened
3: again. Yes, in the 1990s, after the, the awful recession we had in 1991, we were pretty well matching or doing slightly better on some measures and some time periods than... Australia, which was no mean achievement because Australia was one of the top productivity growth countries in the OECD during that difficult period. But then we had the, you know, the, the Labour government, which basically got, after the 2000 Asian crisis, just inherited a period of enormous increases in tax revenues, we were ideologically opposed to reducing tax rates, and spent up large And then the 2008 financial crisis hit, Cullen and Key talk over, and they had deficits as far as I could see. The Christchurch earthquakes aggravated their problems. And it was nine years of tough going to restore fiscal surpluses. So that's when the 2025 task force was set up, because New Zealand was in a hole and needed to get out of it. In brief, the conclusions of the task force was that there's no silver bullets. Progress needed to be made on multiple fronts, every area, R&D, foreign direct investment, tax rates, quality government spending, regulation, the RMA, sort of major problem. Uh, We're seeing it now in, in the housing affordability problem. So though that task force, I think it might have come up with 64 recommendations or something. But it came unstuck because it was headed by Don Brash, who was eminently uh, well qualified to do that as a National Party supporter, former governor of the Reserve Bank. But it came apart when he took over the ACT Party, which didn't turn out well, and that meant that it needed to have a new head And John Key could have published it. I think uh, David Cagle, who was on the task force, would have been an excellent appointment to take over from Don. But I think John was worried that the next report wasn't going to show that the gap was closing with Australia at all. And um it was a difficult problem, and he wasn't going to have the political so none of the recommendations
0: data. got really implemented and actually, no. in the last few years, we have seen a further deterioration in our relative performance to Australia.
3: Yes, and all of the attention about that sort of was has been in abeyance ever since. so that's about eleven years now.
0: Now Tony, uh, you're a game theorist. You basically watch this now as two countries playing a game for the best talent and for the for skills. How do you see this playing out? Maybe also from a theoretical perspective. What should New Zealand do to this competitive challenge?
2: Can I, I mean, I think listening to Bryce's summary of the situation in the change in the 90s to the 2000s, one of the things that's really interesting is if you compare, certainly with Britain, for instance, the you did have this increase in public spending in Britain. You did have a shift away from governments who were trying to tighten. And part of that, but, but there was a benefit to that that you actually observed this in in terms of greater investment in the, in the health system, for instance, where, just going back to where we were at the beginning of the discussion, which had palpable positive results. I think what's interesting in New Zealand and unfortunate is we haven't seen those benefits. We haven't seen the much better system we would have hoped to observe from that. And going to your sort of comment about game theory, I mean, this this is, I think, if you are a game theorist looking at this, you would say this was really a very boring game because it would appear that the
0: because the Australians are always winning. Well,
2: that's right. And in particular that <laughs> they seem to have a lot of so some of these are, are not uh, there's nothing you can do about it. Australia is a place with It's a very big place with lots of stuff in it which people around the world want, right? So th- this kind of extraction economy is not something which New Zealand can match, right? But that
0: means that we should really strive to be even better.
2: Uh, absolutely, but I think th- th- there is a reality of those kinds of sort of endowments as an as a benefit as an advantage and I d- I don't think we should ignore I don't think we should ignore that. That's the first thing. I think the second thing is around New Zealand being relatively just relatively small and a long way from the world. Yes, the world has got smaller in terms of the ability to transport between different places. But it is still the case that New Zealand is a long way from the rest of the world. So all other things equal. Other places are going to have advantages from that. Some, one of the interesting comparisons, I think, that people do historically is when New Zealand in the early 20th century was doing really very well. I mean, at one point it was per capita the richest country in the world. Right? But that's got to, got to bear in mind that was because there was a very weird political situation in which as part of a, a worldwide empire, there, there were political advantages to making New Zealand, to giving advantages to people, to the economy of New Zealand. So really since the seventies, New Zealand has had this kind of one, we don't have the, the sort of natural advantages, the endowment advantages that Australia do, and two, the, that loss of that political link is something which we're always going to be struggling against. And of course that brought down Muldoon in the end and brought about some of the changes you saw in the nineteen eighties. That the there's a positive. It has a magnificent. it has a wonderful culture of hard work, of people being very determined to and it is Part of the question here, and, and taking this further forward as a debate, is how is New Zealand able to, to use that culture that's already there? That someone's called the number eight wire culture, but it's that culture of hard work, of making things happen. to to benefit the country. So that gives us our advantage over Australia. We don't need to be able to dig up uranium. We have the people and it's the people we can use to make things better.
1: But
0: we're not making things easier for ourselves, Eric. Oh no.
1: So I might push back a little bit on the endowment stuff. So Australia obviously does have a lot more natural resource endowments than we do. But every time somebody discovers something here, there's 50 people that show up saying that, well, you're not allowed to mine iron sands. You're not allowed to get other resource nodules that you find on re- on seabed floor, or you're not allowed to mine in a place that has historic mining because it might disturb some of the historic mining amenities. Like just we, We've got an awful lot of own goals here where you kind of figure that even if we did have like $100 billion of gold sitting under a mountain, they'd find a reason not to allow anybody to dig it up. So I'm not sure that it's just the differential endowments. There's also a differential attitude in whether it's allowable to uh, mine some of this stuff up and allow it to benefit people. So there's that problem. There's all of the issues that Bryce had talked about in the 2025 report and difficulties in achieving greater productivity. It seems to be difficult to get consensus on that or at least that labor seems unlikely to move on it. The other side of it that... Particularly frustrates me though, if households are considering whether to make a life here or whether to make a life in Australia, it's not just about wages, which are determined by productivity. It's your after housing cost, after tax income, right? So after tax, you can argue about Australia has a different tax structure than us, but it seems fundamentally weird that every Australian major city other than Sydney is more affordable relative to household income than Auckland, OK, so if you're attracted by the big smoke, you want to have a big city. You're not considering moving from Auckland down to Christchurch for lower cost of living. You're looking at large Australian cities and they are all more affordable relative to incomes than Auckland. Now, fixing the wages side, that's a lot harder. Nobody wants to, Everybody in this podcast room may agree with the stuff out of the 2025 commission report. There's no way that labor would touch it. But more frustrating is that housing costs remain through the roof when that was like the big thing for labor when they came in in 2017, right? How Getting housing costs down was the biggest part of their platform. And we're still not there. They've made some good progress in the national policy statements. But if you just look at this past week... Auckland put out its future development strategy that all but, all but guarantees that Auckland will continue to be massively unaffordable because Auckland's planners have decided that they would never want to have anybody ever turn land on the fringes of town into subdivisions. It, and that it, is this, It's dis- insane.
0: Despite Auckland Council realizing that they have to
1: find place for 500,000 people in the next what, 20 years or so. Well, it, it's worse than that, right? So housing people would say that you want to have a super abundance of zoned land for housing. You shouldn't just be planning to meet expected population growth and say, okay, well we're expecting that there's going to be 12 people that are coming to dinner. So we want to make sure that we have precisely 12 chairs and no extra ones, right? If you want affordable housing, make it easy or have it permissible to develop housing all over the place. Like, allow it for a doubling of yeah, population yeah. I, I size or tripling of it. I don't
0: disagree with that at all, but they're not uh, providing even for the 12 chairs. Yes.
1: No. <laughs> so they are increasing what they say is development capacity in in town, so allowing a lot more intensification, which is awesome, but you're never going to get to affordability that way. You no. also have to free up land at the city's fringes. Uh, work by Treasury has confirmed this. Basic Economics confirms this. There's just here's an easy intuition on it. Imagine that you're willing to pay an extra half a million dollars for the convenience of living downtown and the enjoyment of all of the things that downtown life has to offer compared to a house at the edge of town. Now, if a house at the edge of town costs $600,000 more than it needs to, which is what the, product, the infrastructure commission showed in this latest work on land prices the price of land right at the city's fringe in Auckland compared to similar rural land after accounting for the cost of bringing land into use for residences, 1260 or $1,270 per square metre of inflated cost at Auckland's boundary because of those zoning restrictions. If land at the edge of town costs $600,000 more for a section than it should, and you're willing to pay a half a million dollars more for the benefit of living downtown, that bids up land prices across the whole freaking city. If you ban building at the fringes, apartments are going to be more expensive than they need to be. But none
0: of this is new. I started my think tank career actually in London, working for a think tank called Policy Exchange, and we looked at land use planning. At the time, there was a report by Kate Barker, who was on the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee, and she detailed, actually, how all of this works in Britain with the green belt. And it was exactly the same story. And we're talking about 25 years ago. And actually, there are studies going back even further, documenting these effects. And we're still doing the same kind of nonsense. But,
2: but I think this is where, I mean, there's two aspects. One, to sort of supplement Eric's story here, what, what's going on here is not just that you have 11 chairs for 12 people, but we've designed this so that the week is weakest member of those 12 people is always going to get elbowed off yep so, mm-hmm. and this is what we exactly what we observe we observe the poor other people are being hammered by these kinds of policies and i think that the second thing to note here is that what you do is you lock people in to this into this system where people's houses are overpriced because if you own one of those houses and you've bought them relatively recently a lot of it's it's your personal capital is in those houses so you have an incentive to try and push back against any attempts to allow... House prices to go back to something more normal. In the short term, in the long term, there can be all kinds of social benefits. In the short term, and the short term can be, you know, half a decade. But you can be in a position where you're financially worse off, and you've got the kind of building going on, and the kind of amenity for buying the house is reduced. Sure, but but all of this
0: has been analysed to death. I'm looking at you, Bryce. I mean, if you were a Martian or any kind of other alien looking at New Zealand, you would be surprised how this country keeps shooting itself in the foot all the time, systematically, really trying. To rob itself of any opportunities to get any better at anything, and rather being content with seeing a large part of its population disappear to Australia and other countries.
3: Yes, that's that's the balance of the thing. It was different in the reaction to Muldoon when there was a real major foreign exchange crisis and things had to be freed up. There was there was no option. Uh, you'd run out of foreign exchange. You had to devalue then you had to defend the, the new exchange rate and you had to use interest rates to do that. And that meant the whole free structure had gone by the burden of the devaluation. So when, when things just unraveled inexorably... And so you're telling us we need another foreign exchange
0: crisis until we start reforming again?
3: It looks, well, it looks like that's what it takes. People get complacent. They think that big big government can solve every problem. So here we've got big problems in the government-run health sector, the education sector, the transport sector with Kiwi Rail. But the philosophy in Wellington is still that Wellington knows best. The, the government's proposals for replacing the Resource Management Act look like they'll make everything harder, development harder, housing harder. They haven't done a proper problem diagnosis there, so the solutions aren't directed at a well identified problem. So, yeah, New Zealand sort of going through a, another borrow and hope and spend up large phase like it was under Norman Kirk. And, and then Mowdaine. Yeah. So
1: the fundamental tragedy underlying everything going on in Auckland and housing more generally remains broken funding and financing systems for infrastructure and broken incentives facing councils. Auckland is doing this because it is what every it it is what central government incentivizes Auckland to do. If uh, if central government makes it hard for Auckland to afford the infrastructure that's necessary to support growth and doesn't allow Auckland to share in the benefits of allowing growth and leaves a lot of room in the various policy statements for Council to continue to block growth, you shouldn't be surprised that Auckland Council will use whatever levers they've got to keep trying to block growth. I am hoping that there's still opportunity to change that. There's the Review into the Future for Local Government that might yet pick up some of the ideas around fiscal federalism or different ways of funding and financing councils that they're more pro-growth. course, you're it, optimistic. Well, the draft report really seemed to have gone off the rails and into yes. other woolier activities.
0: I didn't see any reasons for hope in that draft report.
1: Uh, there were a couple of paragraphs that, if you squinted, could be read as support for sensible couple things. couple of paragraphs, Okay. <laughs>
0: We've become very modest here. (laughs) But anyway, okay, we've had this discussion on localism and providing incentives for growth many times on this podcast. But it's not just that, really. And I mean, the reason why we're talking about Australia is, of course, because the Australians have just made themselves more attractive by offering a pathway to citizenship for Kiwis in Australia. And as I said, it's not just housing. I mean, if you had had your scooter accident in an Australian city, you probably wouldn't have had to wait one and a half hours for an ambulance, and you wouldn't have been stuck in A&E for hours without being seen properly.
1: Quite possibly, yeah. I'm not sure what the wait times are there. One fun bit, if we go back to COVID times and everybody was worrying about the system collapsing because of that, I'd done a bit of work just looking at, in in the US, can you get decent data on how long an ambulance wait is? You can find easy data, like you just go to a website it says how long the ambulance waits are how long the ED waits are for different emergency rooms at different hospitals you might choose to go to, all that data gets buried here, it's like they don't want you to know it and you know that it has to be sitting in the background of the system they just don't want it to be out there for people to be able to make these kinds of comparisons because it's well, probably not that flattering of course not, so there is risk of hitting a proper downward spiral in health in particular which could give some of the, well I don't like the worse the better argument, but it could give the kind of crisis point that the 80s had given we're not going to get an exchange we're not going to get a currency crisis here because we've got flexible exchange rates now but if a lot of the pressure isn't just that australia pays an awful lot more for medical professionals but also that working conditions are terrible because if you don't have any colleagues it's a giant mess trying to work in the health system every person that leaves makes the next person more likely to leave right and if in that evaluation it's real wages that include housing costs, as well as those conditions. Well, we do want to improve housing, making it easier for foreign nurses to come in might be good. It's only very recently that they decided to green list some of these allied health professionals and nurses so that they're able to live here reasonably as a permanent resident rather than in very temporary kinds of statuses. Embedding that and getting a more flexible approach around occupational licensing, easier to recognize foreign medical staff qualifications, and making a fast track through immigration systems for them could all be pretty helpful. So let's lift the
0: tone of this conversation and make it hopeful, optimistic, and constructive and talk about the 65 different measures we need to do urgently now to really catch up with Australia. We've got five minutes.
2: <laughs> I, th- I think the, eas- the one that is easiest because... it meets the kind of distributional goals of the current government is around moving these restrictions on building houses. This is just in a country... New Zealand is five million, five and a half million people in a roughly the same size. So New Zealand is roughly 5.5 million. It's the same size as the United Kingdom in terms of land with about 70 million people, right? There should never be in New Zealand a point where there is land as is an issue, where prices—that's is, a problem for housing. It's—it is a very it large. It shouldn't country even run. be a
0: problem in the UK because only eight <laughs> percent of the UK is developed.
2: So even more so here. So I think that that's one of the the first things. I think I think we were. So Eric alluded to this. This, this what, what I would suggest to you is that this kind of culture in government and uh, uh, Bryce alluded to as well. So that the all the examples we've given around incentives here. The language that is used is a is perverse incentive. Right? There's nothing perverse about the incentive. It's perverse about the people who put in the rules that made the incentives work against your policy. And I think trying to move away from that culture, which blames other things rather than trying to reflect on what and the way that you think about problems and how you could you could actually address them to bring about change, that would be the example that I would you know in terms of changing the way government operates.
1: Yeah, central government has engaged in all kinds of wishful thinking about how local governments behave. They have figured that if they just beat them up with a big enough, dirty enough stick, that local councils will comply. Well, local councils spend all of their time trying to figure out how to best respond to their incentives. Central government spends very little time thinking about how to structure those incentives. So, of course, local's going to win on that, or at least you're not going to get the outcomes that wishful thinking might lead you to?
0: Well, maybe central government is the main problem, full stop, um, because it is not just local government that's suffering. I mean, look at the mess they have created in polytechnics. Look in the centralization of health. I mean, the DHBs didn't work, but what what succeeded it probably doesn't work either, and it's probably making things worse. It is a problem, actually, of central government trying to control every single aspect of the economy now. Yeah,
1: The health reforms are just ludicrous. The... They keep saying that, well, there's no good time to do an admin restructure of a health system, but surely some times are a hell of a lot worse than others, and in the middle of a pandemic seems like the worst possible time for trying to do this. Why they thought this was a good idea is beyond me.
3: Price, do you have an idea? Well, yes, they got the same person to do it that mucked it up in 2000, so... So one of the problems with the pandemic they had was that there was no overall coordinating structure for the district health boards. Why wasn't there? Well, it was because in 2000, the the Labour government abolished the National Health Funding Authority, which was the coordinating body. So these problems in New Zealand are so much self-inflicted, I think. We can talk about our remote location and our... Our energy. But even then, you know, one of my my contemporaries did his PhD in in geology from Stanford, I think it was, Stanford or Berkeley. And he said to me, Look, Bryce, he said, it's a myth that we're not as resource rich as Australia. He said, We simply don't know. And people don't want to know. Like they banned that, this government banned that oil exploration offshore. Well, What sort of society doesn't even want to know what opportunities it's closing itself off from? So uh, it's the self-inflicted things which are the problem. And at the moment, we've got an excess of this belief that central government knows best and more well into control is is the answer to any problem. I'm reminded of Ronald Reagan. He said, you know, government's not the solution, it's the problem. I think that's the, the situation we're in. It's a
0: mentality issue as well. I remember my first ever visit to Dunedin. I just arrived in the country and I took part in the discussion on Dunedin's economic development plan. And I went to a town hall meeting and I was just struck with how negative people were. So that plan at the time, and we're talking about 2012, mentioned the possibility of some offshore oil and gas exploration. And then people actually started saying, well, you can't do this. Have you ever heard of the Dutch disease? Have you seen what happened to Nigeria? All the things that come when you try to explore things, is all terrible. Norway's fund.
1: My yeah, God. Well,
0: yeah, you don't have to convince me. But maybe it was just a need. And there was a certain negative feeling about it. And I was really struck because I wouldn't have expected that kind of discussion. Certainly not where I had just come from in Australia. But anyway, as we're talking about Australia... So the Australian side will make it easier for you to come. And just a few days later, David Parker actually releases his thoughts on tax reform. Not official government policy, but we can probably expect something in the election campaign. So really, at the moment, we have to compete with Australia. We're sending a signal now to our perhaps most ambitious people in society. If you really want to be successful, we are going to tax you in the future. So you might actually really consider leaving. I mean, for me, this was just plain dumb. Or do I miss something here?
2: I was going to say, I'm probably more sanguine about what we're observing than so colleagues here, just because I think this is um, what's dog whistle politics. Parker has made no promises, and in, and my understanding is he's been told not to make any promises from the centre. This is about a party that's going to be in an election in a few months, appealing to its base, saying the right words at this time, in order that when it says some more sort of substantive things down the line, it's, it's, it's solidified its base. So I'm And perhaps more sanguine, simply because I don't think there's anything actually, any substantive action actually being uh, proposed, uh, whether it's through capital gains or whatever, through these kinds of, this kind of dog whistling. So it's a debate rather than uh, something real that the government is thinking of doing.
3: I think there's there's an issue of capital labour ratios and willingness to invest and attitudes towards investment. If, if we take housing, for example, the government sort of anti-private landlords, so it's, it's pro-first-time pro house bars. But as you were saying before, cutting off the supply of rental uh, accommodation is going to hurt the people at the bottom the most. So we, we've got a situation where almost every government policy you can look at today is pulling in the opposite direction from some other government policy. And the, the the tax on capital, as Mike Riddle raises, isn't helping with the capital labour ratio, I don't think. And those productivity figures I wrote up recently showed that Australia was getting much bigger uh, since 1996, labour productivity growth in New Zealand overall, and it was coming almost not because of multi-factor productivity difference that was small. The big difference was that Australians were wrapping a lot more capital per around each worker as the growth rate in New Zealand. And um, we look at, at countries like Ireland, Singapore, Hong Kong, which of England to agree, which have really opened themselves up to overseas investment. And we should be thinking that raising the capital labour ratio in New Zealand won't be, wouldn't be a bad thing for workers. but but we seem to be in this mindset where capital is, is seen as bad. Landlords are bad, and it's self defeating. It's shooting ourselves in the foot yet again. Yeah, we,
0: we keep scoring these own goals at an incredible speed. Really, we haven't even talked about the successor to the IMA, Eric.
1: Uh, yeah, that'll make things worse as well. But that was also David Parker, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Just coming back on Tony's point and Bryce's, uh, I completely agree with Tony that this that Parker is probably isolated on this. It. Every indication that you get within uh, Wellington is he's, he's off on a limb, doesn't have cabinet support for doing weird stuff on tax. But the more worrying bit is sort of the long run here, where Parker has engaged his ministry to provide a report that will kind of change how people think about tax over the long term. Now, I don't think that IRD like skewed its work in line with minister's preferences but even a down the line take on a measure of economic income that includes unrealized gains where it's pretty implausible like even even if minister parker wanted to tax unrealized gains and he's kind of ambiguous on that There's no real-world policy that that would do that. It would turn into a mess. Like, I know that there are some aspects of foreign taxation here that hit unrealized gains, but you wouldn't see it in New Zealand practice. Just because it would turn into a mess doesn't mean
0: that the government wouldn't do it.
1: Well, it turns into one that'll be sufficiently messy that I don't. I think that they would get pretty sound advice against it. The, the worry, rather, is that it creates the impression that there's this giant pool of money that could be up for the grabbing, if only a government of political will would stand up to these evil rich pricks, right? But most of that's ephemeral. The, you're not going to be taxing the unrealized part if they'd had instead of a report that focused on this one measure of economic income, perhaps a few different bases so that people could think about, well, what's the relevant one for New Zealand taxes, and are there really going to be those big gains there for, for the FISC? Possibly not as much. Like, it would give a better sense of these trade-offs. I, I worry that Parker's not an idiot, that he's playing a long game here, trying to whet public appetite for massive tax changes, predicated on a belief that it would yield a lot of money, and that there is a big pile of money there to be taken when that really isn't the case.
0: And also the media treatment of the whole issue has been well, considerably bad because basically they all ran with the figure the headline figure from the report about a 9.5% tax rate and nobody actually bothered to explain on on what kind of shoddy calculations this was based.
1: Well, it Whether the calculations are shoddy, they're probably irrelevant to any real-world tax. So I wouldn't say that IRD's calculations were shoddy. There's some parts where I would argue with them a little bit, like especially on how they're doing some of the GST calculations. But the definition of income. But yeah, that isn't what would wind up being taxed on a different measure of tax.
0: Just as a side aspect, by the way, we were talking about a bit more than 300 families in that survey, and they were paying about a billion dollars in tax per year. Even if you doubled the tax taken from them, you would only have about maybe five or ten percent of the Auckland Light Rail project.
1: Yeah, so first, you
0: can't really fix the budget with that.
1: Well, yeah, the first order gains are going to be from getting more ef- more effective spending. Now, Parker had framed this more as a. He says different things to different audiences, I think, but at least in the... I'd gone to the lockup on the IRD report and then to Minister Parker's press conference on it, and there it was framed more as around a potential tax switch rather than an increase in tax overall, where he'd want to reduce taxes on some parts of the income distribution, but add in some form of a wealth tax, potentially even on unrealized gains. So that was framed less as let's get a lot more money for the government to do a lot of more good things. It was more about shifting the basis for tax. Now, whether that, it's hard to say what it turns into in practice, but that's how he had framed it. But yes, completely agree. The amount of money at stake here is probably not that big. The first, the the big money always winds up coming from where the mass of your earnings are. And that's not in the high income cohort because there's just not that many of them, right? The real trade-off is, are you willing to put a higher tax burden on middle income earners to pay for a lot more for the government doing a lot more stuff because that's that's where the money is, right?
2: I think that because you raised that several times, and what you were saying was around what people actually want is not the tax, what they want is the benefits. Yep. And I think this is where this government well, is going to have a lot of problems. It's got to persuade people, not just if that they're going to raise the tax, it's got to persuade people that the those who would vote for it would then see benefits in health and education and so on. And that's the bit which this government has, has consistently failed to do. And I think that's perhaps one of the reasons why politically I don't think the taxes is perhaps as bigger issue as it was being made out a few weeks ago. People aren't voting on the basis of who gets taxed. They're voting on the benefits that they get from any spend by the government.
0: Final round and the same question for all three of you. We are about five months away from the 2023 election. How hopeful are you that we will see ideas debated in this election campaign that will actually really move New Zealand forward and close the gap with Australia, Bryce?
3: Well, ACT is publishing its budget, I think, this week and and it's the one which does have a, a, a cohesive sort of framework for thinking about these problems, talking about them. And, you know, what's the comparative advantage of government? Where, where do we really need it to perform? And we re- really need it to perform well in some very important things. So that sets, you know, the economic framework and the debate from that side of it. But that's a small part of the picture. I was reading an article today by Patrick Smalley, arguing say, suggesting that this could be a really nasty election campaign with race issues right at the centre of it and there's a fear of that too and, and I'd see New Zealand First has been well positioned on that one. So I think uh, and the moves now you know, the, the, the disarray really within the Greens and signs of that within Labour too and that debate over whether Labour's chances would be best if it let the Maori Party get all the Maori seats I think things are very much in a state of flux at the moment and there are some troubling scenarios for this this general election. Same question for you,
0: Tony. How hopeful are you we will see a constructive election campaign with great ideas that will really push New Zealand forward?
2: I think I'm perhaps a bit more optimistic than Bryce because I think it's in the periods of flux when people are grasping for ideas, when the, the kind of conventional wisdom... That people are used to and the, the kind of institution, the sort of institutional solidarity is breaking down, that people actually do look for new ideas. So I, I, I think I'm observing uh, sort of work that I'm doing for the initiative around the public service. I'm observing a very wide range of people across the political spectrum asking very hard questions about why is it that the government sector isn't delivering what it wants. And I think that's, so there, there at least, I have, I think we are seeing some kinds of changes. And I think around migration, I think, around the the planning environments, around thinking how government, you know, how we're kind of making use of the great resources that New Zealand does have. I think that is that there is that wider debate
1: potentially
0: happening. So that's quite optimistic. And Eric, are you looking forward to the election campaign?
1: I never look forward to election campaigns. (laughs) Except, well, since we got rid of I predict, I've not looked forward to election campaigns. I used to like betting on them, but now we can't do that anymore. All the ingredients are there if we wanted to have a proper policy based election. So there's the ground has been made fertile for the ideas. The ideas are there. There's been great reports that have been coming out, like I could of ours, but I could also point to the stuff from the Infrastructure Commission that's just been making really clear the effects of failing to plan appropriately and fund infrastructure for growth and urban growth boundary issues around Auckland. So these kinds of issues, it's they've gotten to a point where it's easy to grab onto them for people who aren't just policy experts. We've got some of the numbers out there now. The policy ideas are a lot more coalesced. And there will be debate around a lot of these core issues because, in part, the resource management reform that I'd... Well, I'd kind of diverted from that and gone back to tax. But those proposed reforms, I think the government's hope had been that there'd be bipartisan consensus around it because everybody knew that the old system was messed up. But they have managed to set a set of rules that are going to make things even worse. And it looks like National understands that. Act certainly does. So you will get debate over how we can better run land use regulation so that we are able to build again. If we can get a policy focus on making New Zealand build again, I think that would capture people.
0: That is a very optimistic note to end on. We started at the very beginning. We climbed every mountain, but now it's time to say goodnight. And with that, I thank my colleagues Eric Crampton, Tony and Bryce Wilkinson. It's been a pleasure, and I think we'll talk again in this election campaign.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
3: Thank you.